Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. My name is Doug Taylor. This is Proverbs class number 24. And we are going to jump around a little bit tonight and cover off a section in Proverbs chapter 31, uh, verses 1 through 9. We're going to cover that first. And I want to share with you some ideas um, shared with me uh, earlier this year by Rabbi Morton Moskowitz. If you have a copy of uh, Proverbs in front of you, again, we're looking at chapter 31 and verses 1 through 9. And the section starts out, The words of Lemuel, the king, the prophecy with which his mother disciplined him. Now, we'll learn that uh, this is a metaphor for King Lemuel. He had a certain amount of humility in a sense that his mother gave him musr, gave him uh, uh, ideas about uh, the consequences of his actions, and he's willing to write about it. So in verse 2, it says, What is it, my son? And what is it, O son of my womb? And what is it, O son of my vows? So the commentaries here suggest that there are three types of sons. There's, first of all, the psychological son. Uh, that would be someone, Rabbi Moskowitz, indicated uh, would be a relationship so close that uh, a woman might swear by him. You know, she might say, I swear by my son that da-da-da-da-da. So there's the psychological son, there's a biological son, and then there's a teacher relationship. Now, the mother, in this case, is talking to her son, the king Lemuel. So, why does she have to say all this? And that suggests to us that there are different motives why you give Musser. Musser we defined in an earlier class as the science of the consequences of your actions. It's understanding the consequences of your actions and so it's like an early detection system in your life. It helps you to avoid difficulty if you pay attention to it. Now, Musser teaches you how to make correct decisions in life and how to look at life correctly. It's a framework in the way that you think. And it works for you only, and this is very important, only when the learning affects your life. Otherwise, as we've said in the past, you're like a donkey carrying books. Yeah, you've got lots of books around and lots of information, but if that information doesn't affect you, then it's essentially worthless to you. So Musser is a framework in the way that you think, and there are two parts to it. First of all, there's the science of the consequences of your actions, and that science of life can help you. So there's, I guess you could say, an information side. And then there's part two, which is the application of that science, when you actually apply it to your own life. For example, uh, suppose you study physics. So there is the science of physics, but then if you actually use that information to build a car, that's the application of physics. So Musser is the study of the science of life and the application of it. So it has two parts. Okay, so with that as background, now let's go back to our topic. There are different motives why you might give someone Musser. 
Sometimes you might do it because you want to cover up your own emotions. Sometimes you're really thinking of the other person. And Rabbi Moskowitz's view is that the mother, in this case, is saying that it can't be anything personal. It has to be totally for the other person's benefit that I'm doing this. It's not somehow attached to a personal thing or to anything personal. This is why a lot of the greats spoke to the nation right before they were dying, so that there could be no motive other than the good of the people. So whenever you give Musser, you have to remove any type of possibility that it's personal. And, and Mishlei, the book of Proverbs, wouldn't give these ideas over to us out of guilt. In other words, it wouldn't be like a mother trying to guilt a son by saying, look, I've done all of this stuff for you, now you have to listen to me. So this particular section of this chapter is establishing her credentials. It's identifying that she is operating in his best interest. Okay? Now when it says, what is it, my son, and what is it, O son of my womb, and what is it, O son of my vows, well, we could ask, what's the it? What does all that mean? And the Meiri has a very interesting commentary on this, and I'm reading this uh, out of the art scroll, that um, his mother is basically using three approaches to convince Solomon that Solomon should listen to her. First, she's saying that, look, you're indebted to me because I suffered through all the pain of pregnancy and giving birth and child-rearing for your sake. So that's one thing. The second thing is that you're the son of my womb. I cleaned and cared for you and carried you in my arms. I went through all that. And third, you're the son of my vows. In other words, my love for you was so great that I always swore by you. And so now, what am I asking of you? I don't want your gold, and I don't want your silver. I only want that you should avoid any evil path. Okay, now in verses 3 through 5, and again I'm reading from the art scroll here, it says, Give not your strength to women, and let your conduct not destroy the protocol of kings. It is not befitting for kings who belong to God. It is not befitting for kings to drink much wine and for princes to imbibe strong wine, lest he drink and forget the statute of the Torah which was made and pervert the judgment of all the children of the poor. So these three verses are saying what the act is and what the consequence is. And they're talking about being involved in the party life. You know, having parties all the time. Okay? If you become involved in the party life, then you'll forget the statutes and you'll pervert the judgment of the poor. Okay? So his mother is warning him, don't get involved in that lifestyle. Now, there's an interesting question lurking here. Why doesn't she just say that he'll forget the statutes? Why does she bring up the judgment of the poor? I mean, it seems like an odd thing. She could have covered it all just by saying, look, if you do this, you'll forget the statutes. Why bring up the judgment of the poor? 
And Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that if you're involved in the life of pleasure, that party life, that leads to arrogance. Arrogance means I'm better than you. It's like a clique, uh, the in-group, the in-crowd, where you think you're above certain people. Pleasure like that leads to a certain arrogance that will force you to look down on certain people. So what is there in pleasure that causes this type of arrogance? The life of pleasure is involved in just itself, or in just myself in what will satisfy all my physical needs. It's all about me. It's not about someone else. When a person is focused on getting all the pleasure for themselves that they can, they're not thinking about other people. It's all about me. So this feeds into that arrogance that I'm just t involved totally with myself, and that separates me from others. So the arrogance in this case is that I look down on people who are not in my class. That arrogance comes because you're totally involved in the self, and this is the result of the party lifestyle. You're not seeing yourself as just one person in the whole sea of humanity. Your life is focused around yourself, around your pleasure, and that produces a certain level of arrogance. Okay. Verses 6 and 7 uh, read, Give strong wine to the woebegone, uh, and wine to those of embittered soul. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and not remember his travail anymore. After verse 9, the next part is about the Aishas Chayel, sometimes called the Woman of Valor. And if you read that section, you see that she doesn't take any breaks. Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that to not take any breaks, in other words, she's just constantly involved in activities, it means that you're totally satisfied. The ultimate person that the book of Proverbs is trying to create loves the practical, puts their whole life into the practical, and is totally satisfied with that. So this section seems to be saying that for people who have conflicts and need to get away, who need a break, but that type of person, person should partake of a pleasure in order to be able to operate. In other words, he can't operate without an outlet for his conflicts. The verses aren't saying that it's bad. They're saying that it's not arrogant if you do it for practical reasons. So it's saying, give strong wine to the woebegone, and wine to those of embittered soul. Let him drink and forget his poverty and not remember, remember his travail anymore. There's no criticism in that. If you're doing it for a practical reason, to have an outlet for the person's conflicts, then uh, that's a practical thing. But if you're going after pleasure as an end in itself, that's the party life. And that will lead to arrogance. On the other hand, if you're going after pleasure as a break, as a way to temporarily get some relief from your conflicts, then that's okay. If you need that break, you should go ahead and take it. Most of us have conflicts. 
or we get tired and we need a break from things. It's not wrong to take that break. In fact, it's healthy for us to do so as long as we do it in a healthy way. Now, that's a good time to just expand a little bit on the idea that there are three kinds of pleasures. First of all, there are those that are halakhically prohibited. In other words, they are legally prohibited from us. Okay? And those we can't do, because we have to follow halakha. Uh, and that's the way the system is set up, that's the way God set it up, uh, and we have to do that. The second type of pleasure is something that's addictive or otherwise negative for you. That's also a pleasure that you need to avoid. And the third type is all the other pleasures. And those would be ones that aren't addictive or otherwise negative for you, and they aren't legally prohibited to you. And those are the pleasures that we would want to take advantage of. So again, not wrong to take a break if you need it, especially as an outlet for your conflicts. We just want to make sure that that break and the pleasure that we're doing is something that will not be harmful to us. And then, in verses 8 and 9, we read, Open your mouth on behalf of the mute for the judgment of all confused children. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and obtain justice for the poor and the impoverished. <clears throat> all she's saying is that there are people who can't help themselves. Those are the ones who you should help. Don't get into pleasure because that will take you the opposite way. Don't get into that party life. Pleasure that you don't need will lead you to arrogance. But pleasure that you do need is practical. And you should help those people who cannot help themselves. Giving to the poor could come from arrogance, but it doesn't cause arrogance. Here, what we're saying is that the party life causes arrogance. By contrast, for the woman of valor, the Aishas Chayl, who's described uh, in the later part of this chapter, living the practical life, the life of Proverbs, the life of Mishlei, totally satisfies her. So, we need to be practical. When you get into the study of philosophy, you want to be careful. Don't go off into the clouds. First thing is be practical in reality and look at life in a practical way, and that'll help you, prevent you from going off into the clouds. Now, how do you become an Aishas Heil, a, a woman of valor, or a person of valor? Uh, it could be uh, a man as easily as a woman. And Rabbi Moskowitz said like this, uh, when you get an idea, review it as much as you can take until it becomes as real to you as possible. So review the idea, go over and over it. Then you move on, and the more that you do this, the more that you do this review, you start thinking this way. And the ideas begin to become real to you, and over time, you start finding that you're thinking differently, and that the ideas are starting to affect the way that you think, the way that you look at things, the way that you make decisions. And then your life starts to change. Then the next step is that you start dealing with situations where you can't carry out the practical because of some emotional blockage that you have, 
some emotion is maybe stopping you or preventing you from doing a certain thing. So you take that on as a study. You study that emotion, you investigate it, you look at why uh, that emotion is operating in your life and preventing you from doing uh, what you know is the practical or the best thing to do. And then by going through that study, you can uh, either change that emotion or at least become aware of it enough to be able to operate above it. So that even though that emotion may be operating, uh, you can still operate in a practical and rational manner. You might still, for example, if, if a certain situation really makes you angry, you might still feel the anger, but you'll be able uh, at that level to rise above it and still be able to operate rationally even if the feeling is still there. Okay, let's move on then and jump back to uh, the order in which we were going through Proverbs. Back to Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 26. Proverbs 11:26, and the verse reads, One who withholds grain, the nation will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells grain. One who withholds grain, the nation will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells grain. So, as we've done in prior classes, before we start moving in to try to explain what the verse means, let's first ask, first ask, what are all the questions around this verse? What things don't make sense? What things would we need to define? What things uh, seem unusual that we would want to at least question and get answers to in order to understand what King Solomon is trying to teach us with this verse? One who withholds grain, the nation will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells grain. So let me suggest some questions. First of all, what does it mean to withhold grain? And why would someone do that? The first part says, one who withholds grain. Well, what does that mean? And what would cause someone to do that? And then it says, the nation will curse him. Why? Why will the nation curse him? Why will the nation curse someone who withholds grain? The second half says, blessing will be on the head of him who sells grain. Well, what does that mean for a blessing to be on the head of someone? It's kind of an odd way to put it. And why will there be a blessing on the head of one who sells grain? So I'll suggest that we're dealing with a specific type of economic situation here. And that would be a time of a grain shortage, possibly a famine. If there's plenty of grain around, why would anyone care whether one person sells his or not? I mean, if there's an abundance, it doesn't matter. Everybody's got food, everybody's satisfied, what's the big deal? But if there is a shortage of grain, and one person has a bunch of it, let's say a big storehouse full, then people will look to him to sell it to them because they need it. Now, imagine a situation where people want grain, they don't have any food, and the guy down the street has an abundance of it, let's say a whole warehouse full, and he refuses, it to, he refuses to sell it to them. And people are actually risking going hungry over this. What do you suppose that the people in that community, the nation, will think of such a man? 
They'll hate him. They'll curse him. I mean, they'll say, look, we're hungry, you know, and you've got food. You know, you don't need it for yourself. You've got a whole warehouse full. Sell it to us. We'll pay you. And he won't. People will hate him. Now, we've got to ask a question. Why would a man in that situation withhold selling his grain? I mean, what motive could he have? And I'll suggest the answer would appear to be higher profit. When there's a shortage of a valuable commodity, what happens to the price? It goes up. So the man in the first half of the verse sees that he has something that other people want, that there's a shortage of, and he holds back selling so that he can get a higher price. Or perhaps he sees grain way beyond the practical. Perhaps he has plenty for himself and his family, yet he continues to amass more and more without a practical reason. I mean, look around. We see people who have accumulated millions of dollars, yet they continue to work even though it's not necessary or practical to do so. Perhaps he's one of those people who thinks, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. And so he has the food that people need, but he refuses to sell it to them. Again, what does the nation think of such a man? They curse him. So now let's contrast that with the second half of the verse. In the second half, we have a similar man. He has grain. The people need it. Even though he could hold it back and sell it for more, he goes ahead and sells it anyway. Why? Why might he go ahead and sell his grain even though he could make more money by holding it back. Can you think of a reason why? I'll suggest it's because he sees that the public needs it. The man in the second half of the verse has a different outlook on life and a different outlook on his business. Yes, he needs to make a profit to survive, but he has a broader viewpoint. He sees the needs of society, and he acts accordingly. In this case, he sees the needs of the people, he has the commodity that can help them, and so he makes it available. Sure, he may forego some additional potential profit if he were to wait, but he would be harming the public, or profiting on their misfortune if he did that, and he sees a bigger picture. He sees himself as one piece of the whole societal system with a responsibility to use his resources for the betterment of that society. Business for him is not just a selfish get-as-much-as-you-can game. Rather, he sees his business as a stewardship and an opportunity to help the people around him. He is not in business to maximize his profit. He's in business to maximize his integrity. And so in and by selling his grain to the public, the public sees that he is benevolent. They see that he's kind and generous to the people. And so what do they do? They bless him. They're thankful for him. They view him kindly. And I'll submit that's what it means when the verse says, a blessing will be on the head of him who sells grain. 
So the verse seems to be talking about the difference between the way the wicked man approaches business and the way the righteous man approaches business. The wicked is cursed for the way he operates because it is so self-centered. And the righteous is blessed because he acts benevolently in the best interest of the nation. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay then, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 27. And the verse reads, One who seeks good seeks favor, but he who searches out evil, it will come upon him. One who seeks good seeks favor, but he who searches out evil, it will come upon him. So let's begin by talking here about childhood. During an infant's years, a child's emotions are operating. We see this in children all the time. They react happily when they get what they want, and sometimes very unhappily when they don't get what they want. <clears throat> at these ages, at the young ages, a child's intellect is not yet developed. It's only when a person gets to be about age 12 or 13, usually, that they can start looking at an idea and analyzing things intellectually. So, from this standpoint, a person whose intellect cuts in at, say, age 13, is at a tremendous disadvantage when it comes to intellect versus emotions. Why? The emotions have a 13-year head start. They've been operating, you know, virtually since the baby was born. But it's not till he gets up to about 13 that the child is able to uh, start using his intellect. Now, with that idea in mind, let me read you the Malbum's commentary on this verse. And I'm reading from uh, Malbum on Mishle, uh, published by Feldhorn. And Malbum says like this, Evidently, good is more foreign to human nature than evil. We have to seek it diligently, repeatedly, with special attention. For from childhood, a person's nature tends instinctively to evil. It is enough, however, to merely search for evil. It is always accessible. One who earnestly desires good has to set his mind first on turning his will to goodness. This desire is not a natural gift, but has to be cultivated. As for evil, however, it shall come to him quite spontaneously, since instinct and physical desire provide the fuel and the fire. Okay? Remember our verse, one who seeks good seeks favor, but he who searches out evil it will come upon him. So that is one approach to the verse, the Malbum's uh, idea here. There's another approach. When we talk about the good, it's my understanding that we're talking about the true good, the truth of Torah ideas and acts of justice. Now, if a person is involved in the true good, that is, he sees his place in society, and sees the larger societal system, sees that he's just a part of it, 
and that others have a place in it as well, as we discussed in the previous verse, then that person will act differently than a self-centered person. He'll act with the best interest of society in mind, not just his own self-interest. Now, when a person operates that way, other people notice. It might not be immediate, but if someone is consistently operating in life that way, in their business dealings, their interactions with other people, and so forth, then it almost certainly is going to be noticed eventually. And people like that character trait. They trust that kind of person because they recognize that that kind of person will act with their, uh, and not excluding his, best interests in mind. In other words, people, people recognize when someone is operating uh, in a way that's not completely self-centered. When they're as interested that you get a good deal as that they get a good deal. Uh, and that they're, they're concerned uh, as well about the people and the environment and the society and the community as they are about themselves. Thus, the person who seeks good will, as a byproduct, find favor with others. Now, the person, the verse says, that one who seeks good seeks favor. It's not clear to me whether that verse is suggesting that one who seeks good indirectly or as a byproduct seeks favor. That is, his goal isn't the favor, but he gets it anyway because he's seeking good. Or the verse could be saying that he's actively seeking the favor. However, I can't make that idea fit in the verse because one who is truly seeking the good would only be interested in the favor if it was a practical thing. It wouldn't be a manipulative type of thing where he's pretending to see good so that he can get other people's favor. So I'm inclined to go with the first interpretation and assume that the favor is a byproduct. So now let's talk about the second hand. He who searches out evil, it will come upon him. Now if a person makes a decision to search for evil, he'll act in evil ways. And we've discussed in previous sessions how those who are evil usually end up with the consequences of their actions. In other words, a person who is acting evil is trying to fulfill their desires, their emotional desires, their self-centered desires. And they're not operating in accordance with reality. So they're virtually by definition, going to bump up against reality at some point and end up with consequences uh, that are not going to be favorable, not going to be uh, what they're looking for. So in a person who goes down the path of an evil life, even though sometimes we look at them superficially and you could say, gee, they look like they're having so much fun, there is no real lasting pleasure in that life because you always have to look over your shoulder, you can't count on the support of the community. I mean, the community sooner or later is figuring out what you're up to. Uh, they, they can usually, you know, sniff out an evil person. Uh, and uh, those things that you have done, those schemes that a person has, has uh, perpetrated, 
Sooner or later, they circle around and catch up with the person. <clears throat> uh, and what happens is a person who goes down that path keeps making bigger, generally bigger and bigger mistakes. Uh, they, they get more and more convinced that their decisions are the right ones, even though they're not operating in, court, in accordance with reality, because they, keep, they start out by being successful in a little thing, uh, like maybe stealing a small thing, and then uh, they try something bigger and something bigger and something bigger, and eventually the consequences catch up with them. You can't operate forever uh, out of reality and not have reality eventually catch up with you. It would be an incredibly extraordinary, I guess, luck of many circumstances for a person not to get the consequences of those actions when they're operating outside of reality. So, uh, so the, the evil person is going to end up with the consequences of their actions. So we see from the verse that the person who seeks good will find favor with others, while the one who searches out evil will find it, the evil, and will get negative consequences eventually as a result. Okay, are there any questions on this verse? Okay, then we'll stop here for the evening. Thank you all for joining, and I hope you'll be able to join with us next week. Have a great week. Thanks.